You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Today's show is focused on the Hispanic concept of recogida and the accompanying system called recogimiento. Roughly translated into English, recogida means pick up or capture, while the word recogimiento means recollection, seclusion, or withdrawal. But as many scholars before us have noted, these Spanish words resist translation. To early modern Spanish speakers, they evoked a division in the worlds of the sacred and the worldly. To modern Spanish speakers, they evoke social concepts related to honor and shame. We do know that recogimiento first came into use on the Iberian Peninsula by Franciscans and Catholic mystics. Though this usage continued, the term also came to represent a system of virtue for women, and one that revolved around sexual purity, honor, and physical enclosure. Eventually, this tradition-turned-social norm evolved into an institution for women with many purposes. Join us as we uncover the long and winding history of recogimiento in colonial Latin America. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. After 1492, which is, you know, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, um, Spain quickly established dominance in the Andean and Central American regions. So that would be like where Peru is along the Andes Mountains and then Central America, like Mexico. My goal here is to capture sexual practices and attitudes encompassing recogimiento 
in Central and South America from the pre-Columbian era, where the Americans and Iberians developed sexual practices in isolation from one another, to the point of contact, to the centuries-long period of Spanish colonial rule. By 1600, Ricogimiento reached beyond the bounds of ideas and became brick-and-mortar institutions that controlled the sexuality of Latin American women, especially in Mexico City, in New Spain, and Lima, which was in Peru. We have covered gender and sexuality in pre-modern Europe pretty extensively in other episodes, so we'll try to make this brief by focusing on how Iberia, which comprises Spain, Portugal, and the Basque country, was unique in its approach to gender and sexuality in the 1400s. This gives us some insight into why this context was the site of Recogimiento's conception. (laughs) Very cute. Get it? It's a good joke. Yes. I wrote it. (laughs) Iberian culture was primarily introduced to the Andean and Nahua people in the 1520s and 1530s by the exploratory and martial expeditions of Hernan Cortez and Francisco Pizarro. The men in these Spanish forces were reared on a steady diet of patriarchy, warfare, and Catholic exaltation. As historian Karen Vieira Powers puts it, their attitudes about gender had been formed in the crucible of the reconquest. Military activities dominated life and a culture that eulogized wartime deeds and glorified male bravado. All the stuff that you love, Sarah. I do, actually. (laughs) You love it. Feminist podcast. I love male bravado and military activities. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the Reconquista as it was known in Spanish, um, was Iberian Catholics' 800-year struggle to expel the Moors from the peninsula. The Moorish kingdoms in Iberia, together called El Andalus, came to control parts of the Iberian peninsula in the 700s. So, pretty, you know, medieval period. El Andalus was quickly organized under the Muslim Caliphate of Cordoba. Over the medieval period, Spanish and Portuguese Christians worked to repulse Muslim forces off the peninsula. By the 1400s, only one stronghold remained, the Emirate of Granada. At this time, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile joined their kingdoms together and convinced Pope Sixtus IV to declare their war against the Moors as a holy crusade. This was the Reconquista, and it was accompanied by decades of violence, forced conversions, and the establishment of the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisitions. Even though the Inquisitions were very religious, it's important to note that they were national institutions. They're run by the state. And they were created to root out any unorthodox Catholic theology, insincere conversion, or heretical behavior on the peninsula. In practice, the Inquisition primarily targeted mixed-race Spaniards, crypto-Jews, and the descendants of converted Muslims and Jews. Ethnicity and lineage became increasingly important to proving that one belonged in Iberia. In this climate, an honor culture developed, emphasizing purity of blood based not only on ethnic lineage, but confessional lineage as well. Iberians paid special attention to marriage rights. The legal and social consequences of illegitimacy, birth outside of wedlock, were severe. Unsurprisingly, this was a resolutely patriarchal society, one whose gender norms were governed by ideas of religious virtue, ethnic purity, and confessional orthodoxy. 
political authority was restricted to men who became the public representatives of their households, while women were increasingly confined to the home. In trial law, three female witnesses equaled the legal weight of one male witness. Gross. (laughs) Men were charged with maintaining orderly households and regulating the virtue of the women and girls within their homes. So far, this sounds pretty similar to early modern Northern Europe as well as we have encountered it. But there are a few important differences. Yeah, I was. I don't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say it sounds really similar to what was it? The Coverture episode. Yeah. You talked about this concept of like maintaining an orderly household quite a lot. That's why you can say that there really is kind of a a European generality, even though Southern Europe was so very different from Northern Europe. There's still a lot of similarities compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. The biggest difference is that this was a solidly Catholic environment. Virginity was the ideal state for all humans, but especially for women. And this is one of the reasons for the Hispanic commitment to the Virgin Mary. I used to listen to this Hispanic uh, comedian who would make fun of his mom um, and say she would be like eating at a party and she would say, move the beans, move the rice, it's Maria, and like say that she could see the Virgin Mary on her plate or whatever. And he'd be like, no, it's not. I love it. I know. It was very cute. But um, anyway, so married women were defiled by definition, right? And and therefore, they were in a way inferior. Still, marriage was considered to be a necessary evil. Why? When April covers Ireland, we have to talk about this too. Because in Ireland, it's the same. It's like in Catholic Ireland. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you all have to get married and you can only have sex within marriage, but also... Marriage is horrible because it makes you have sex and you right. shouldn't have sex at all. <laughs> so it's yeah, sort of yeah. this strange thing. So mm-hmm. large numbers of Iberian women sought contemplative lives away from the overbearing authority of men in cloistered convents. Some women religious, such as Teresa of Avila, managed to publish important theological treatises and earn considerable authority as Catholic mystics and martyrs. One of Teresa of Avila's contributions to Catholic theology was her perfection of the Franciscan method of mental prayer, and this was called recogimiento. According to historian Elena Carrera, the Franciscan practice of recogimiento was aimed at passing beyond the bodily, the sensible, and even the intelligible by means of faith and love. So it's very sort of, this is very common in bridal mysticism, this sort of very emotive sensory experience of God. Mm. The three phases of Ricogimiento exercised different faculty of the soul, memory, understanding, and will aimed at quiet, reflective self-knowledge. Teresa of Avila perfected this process of self-examination and came to the conclusion that power, quote, does not simply circulate through a network of communications external to individuals, but is internalized through the individual's perception of themselves. This idea that voluntary seclusion and introspection translates into power, that was dangerous to the Catholic Church. Women's growing religious authority disrupted the patriarchalism that was so ingrained in Iberian culture. In some contexts, this was remedied by incentivized and coerced marriage. 
marriage appeared as a good solution to Iberian and papal authorities who were indignant at the so-called feminization of the church because marriage subverted women's religious authority. Married women, if they wish to keep their honor, must ask their husbands to intercede on their behalf in spiritual as well as political and legal affairs. Right. So once women start to say, oh, okay, well, I can use, you know, virginity and becoming, you know, taking religious vows, I can use that to become more powerful. Men were like, hang on a minute, lady. Yeah. You should probably get married. So um, this devoutly Catholic, militaristic, honor and purity bound society was the same society that financed European exploration, conquest and colonization of the Caribbean and Central and South America. So what did it look like once Iberian culture collided with the indigenous cultures they found in the Americas? Before we talk about uh, pre-Columbian indigenous sexuality, we want to establish a few important facts about Spanish rule in Latin America. The first is that the Catholic Church had special authority in the American colonies. The papacy was granted special privileges from the Spanish and Portuguese crowns called the Patronato, Therefore, in colonial Latin America, the church and state were often merged into one. This remained the case until about the 1770s. Due to the language barriers and cultural syncretism happening after contact, indigenous conversion was not easily measured in terms of theology or attending to the sacraments. However, indigenous people's commitment to Catholic sexual and gender norms was one metric they could use to gauge the mission's success. Therefore, regulating indigenous marriage and sexuality were incredibly important to establishing colonial rule and to identifying sexual transgressions. Sexuality was policed in church and by Catholic confraternities, which are kind of like, I don't know, guilds or companies. Um, And deviance was litigated in several institutions, church courts, um, by the Inquisition, which of course was part of an arm of the state. Um, during the Sacrament of Confession by just individual priests, and within various Catholic missions. When missionary Juan Perez Bocanegra prepared a penitential guide for colonial priests, he included 236 questions about sex. (laughs) Most of them, I know, it's like, stop thinking about sex, Bocanegra, calm down. Um, (laughs) Most of them were concerned with convincing indigenous converts that practices such as trial marriage were now to be understood as sinful. So kind of keep that all in mind as we talk a little bit about what indigenous sexuality looked like um, at the point of contact. Right. It reminds me of like the the Foucauldian idea that like the Victorians, it's not not that the Victorians didn't talk about sex. They were like freaking obsessed with sex. Mm -hmm. And it's like the same thing in the Catholic church, right? Like it's like they're completely preoccupied with sex. He's asking 236 questions about this apparently super taboo thing, right? It just shows how important it was to them. Yeah. Well, controlling it was important. Right. But yeah. still, I mean, sex was at the center of that, that yeah. need to control. True. So another important thing to add, shortly after contact, Latin America was populated by not only indigenous peoples and Europeans, but by free and enslaved Africans as well. After 1550, the issue of miscegenation would become important, but in the early years, interconfessional relationships were the crown's main concern. Because of the reality of the Reconquista, interfaith marriages were prohibited. 
This became a problem when the conquistadors engaged in sexual relationships with indigenous women because they were not Christians. It became common then for conquistadors to perform cursory baptisms on indigenous women before they had sex with them. Like, hold that thought, sweetheart. I just got to, like, dunk you in this lake and then I can put my penis <laughs> like, in Like, how awkward. Like, right. okay, wait. <laughs> but before we do it. Can I just put this I need water to on your head? <laughs> baptize you a little bit. I know. Right. Um, and people say that condoms ruin the mood. Right. Um, <laughs> or so, asking for consent, right? Like, yeah. Oh, God. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I'm going to take a quick detour, though, into the attitudes and practices that were prevalent in the Americas before contact with Europeans. I just think it's important to understand what the Europeans felt like they needed to change. So um, the diversity in Central and South America was and still is dizzying. So it's kind of risky making generalizations. But for the sake of clarity, I'm going to make some tough calls. Um, I will focus mainly on Quechua-speaking people. These are the Inca and the surrounding Andean cultures around them, um, as well as the Nahua-speaking people of Central America, the Mexica and the Maya um, also known as the Aztecs, the Mexica were known as the Aztecs, and those surrounding cultures. So it's kind of regional. Um, both of these areas were highly developed before European contact, and both were also colonized by the Spanish as early as the 1520s. Moreover, Lima and Mexico City, two cities important to the story of Ricojimiento, were located in these regions. Now, the concept of marriage was widespread within indigenous societies, um, those that lived in Central and South America prior to 1492. Marital partners were usually chosen communally, not by the spouses themselves. However, compatibility did matter, and trial marriages were common, especially among Andean cultures who called the practice servanakoi. Prospective couples lived together in the home of the bride's father for a prescribed period of time. Sometimes this practice was a means of ensuring fertility between the couple. In that case, the marriage would be solemnized in a ceremony once the bride became pregnant. Other times, it became clear that the couple was incompatible. The trial marriage was dissolved and both partners were free to marry others. I mean, not for nothing, but like that policy would have saved like the English crown a lot of beheadings. Yeah, <laughs> and it would have saved a lot of babies from being killed at birth <laughs> like, right i mean it's that, right that seems like an eminently practical <laughs> arrangement to me yeah but the catholic church didn't ask but me. you only have one true wife in the catholic church and that's the first one you marry and yep. then after that everyone else is just a prostitute <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep <laughs> There were some prohibitions against incest or consanguinity, which is what it's called when spouses descend from the same ancestors, so typically more distant relations. But these prohibitions were not uniform or necessarily compatible with Catholic concepts of incest or consanguinity. Most marriages among indigenous couples were monogamous, but there were some important exceptions to this. Some indigenous elites, most notably the Inca, practiced polygamy as a status symbol or to extend their kinship networks. The indigenous American attitude towards premarital sex was more relaxed than those in Europe. That's not surprising. <laughs> Just, you know, based on European sexual <laughs> ideas. Couples were expected to have sexual relations during their trial period before their marriages were solemnized. 
Sexual promiscuity was certainly not the norm, but there were no strict requirements of virginity on the wedding night. However, indigenous attitudes towards extramarital sex or adultery were similar to those in Europe, especially for women who were sometimes subject to severe punishments. Also similar to Europe, there was a gendered double standard. Indigenous men were much more likely to get away with extramarital sex than indigenous women. Yes. Which also shocking. Yeah, is annoying. Um but appears to have been the case for the most part almost all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so among most indigenous Americans, human bodies and sexuality were linked cosmologically with systems of order and disorder. Maintaining bodily control was crucial to the harmony of the cosmos. Hypersexuality could therefore be conceived as disruptive, so much so that some societies preferred to relegate all sexual activity to the outdoors. Indigenous societies practiced periodic ritual abstinence and placed taboos on sexual activities like incest, adultery, abortion, and homosexuality. So we're not saying that there are some, like, you know, um, postmodern utopia or something where they're all just, like, free-loving it or anything. Some indigenous sexual norms sound similar to European Christian ideas of sexuality that we've discussed in past series, I think. Um, Nothing like shocking or anything. Um, But there were very important distinctions that come to light when we look at the period directly after initial European contact. One has to do with theology, which sounds boring, but I don't think it is in this case. Um, Catholic Europe perceived the cosmos as one that operated on a scale of good and evil. Therefore, the ideal state was good, which was at one end of the scale. Sinful and deviant activities were believed to pollute the soul, and purifying ceremonies like confession and penitence were meant to restore the soul to that good state. Indigenous American societies understood the cosmos as one that operated on a scale of order and disorder. But the goal was not to achieve perfect order on one end of the scale. The ultimate goal was to balance the ultimate goal was balance to achieve moderation between order and disorder. Therefore, any extreme, be it sexual or otherwise, could be harmful to the body and, by extension, to the cosmos. Generally speaking, then, indigenous ideas of sexual pollution and purity were rather moderate, rather than the extreme, in comparison to the Catholic ones. Right. So the goal is to be somewhere in the middle there, whereas the Catholic goal was not to be in the middle of good and evil, but to be good. <laughs> yeah. Completely good. Completely yeah. good. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that understanding will kind of help us to explain what some of this cultural negotiation about sexuality ends up looking like and why some indigenous people were like really confused as to what's exactly going on in this new Catholic Latin America. Um, so I just wanted to include that there. Um, in terms of indigenous people, we know the most about the Aztecs and the Inca specifically because of their prolonged contact with Spanish missionaries and statesmen, um, their early adoption of Iberian languages, and the fact that they translated their own languages into alphabetical scripts. So some historians think that the more centralized indigenous polities, like that, you know, the actual empires that existed at the point of contact, um, that they were kind of more hierarchical and because of that their society had more strict um, gender norms and more sexuality restrictions um, so a lot of you know other cultures that that aren't these two might have had even looser um, 
more, um, I don't know, different from European norms than they did. Um, the Inca Empire, though it was huge and powerful, was relatively decentralized compared to the Aztec Empire, which dominated the Nahua-speaking folks further north. So generally, Inca gender and sex norms were a little looser uh, than Aztec ones. If you know indigenous sexuality sounds very similar to Europeans, it's also because a lot of the information we have about them were from missionaries who were very keen to highlight similarities because they're trying to build bridges with these cultures in order to convert them. So keep that in mind. As far as we can tell, the Mexica, which were the Nahua-speaking people who built the Aztec Empire, um, favored the marital state and wives were subordinate to husbands. According to the Huehue Huatoli, a discourse of Nahua elders, quote, when your husband asks you something or entrusts something to you, or when he tells you to do something, you are to obey him properly, end quote. The Mashika also distinguished between legitimate and illegitimate children, but among the Nahua communities who practiced trial marriage, children was resulting from unsuccessful trial marriages were raised with legitimate status, right? They weren't illegitimate just because the marriage didn't work out. Nahua women were apparently advised to be modest in their demeanor, um, a recommendation that the Spanish both emphasized as a similarity and then negated by clutching their pearls at Nahua women's so-called promiscuity. In all, the Mashika's approach to gender and sexuality was aimed at balance and moderation, as was that of other Nahua-speaking people, such as the Maya. Catholics encountering the Mashika would probably not have understood their societies as moderate in any way. Aztec religious rituals often involved sexual components because they were aimed at agricultural fertility, which was linked to human fertility. One ritual included the procession of a male priest with an erect penis or a male priest wearing the flayed skin of a female human sacrifice. Catholic missionaries were obviously scandalized by these performances and used them as evidence that the Mexica were savage idolaters. Inca society functioned quite differently from Iberian society in that it practiced gender complementarity and gender parallelism. Gender parallel societies contain two separate spheres for men and women, but each operates with autonomy in their own sphere. One is not in control of the other. Gender complementarity refers to the Inca understanding of the two sexes. They ascribe different roles and qualities to men and women, but understood both the masculine and feminine as essential to creating balance and harmony. Right. This is where you sort of see a big difference with Europe in that we had that idea of coverture where women were subordinated to mm-hmm. men and didn't have their own legal identities. Um, in this case, uh, they practiced gender parallelism and the genders being complementary and parallel was part of maintaining that balance, that cosmological balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rather than opposing camps in the fight for authority, Inca men and women were necessary for each other. Unlike the Iberian context, where women's roles were auxiliary and marriage was a device to keep them out of trouble, Inca men and women were essential parts of one whole and spouses were partners in the business of life. For example, Inca origin stories tell of a founding couple rather than a founding father or Adam, the first man who makes the first woman out of his rib, (laughs) which obviously the, the Christian, the biblical uh, origin story. Only one of them. There's two different origin stories in Genesis. 
Is there? And yes, one of them there is. And she's in made one out of them, his butthole. And <laughs> no, in one of them, uh, it is, that is not how it works. Um, that's like, I don't know. This is like, there are people out there that probably have known that for a long time, but I was in a Bible study recently and we learned that. And I was like, my jaw hit the floor and I was like, wait a minute. Wait, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I mean, I went to a ton of Bible studies, but we 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 studied the the New Testament. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, this so was like very recently. I just learned this and it just blew my mind. Anyway, that is interesting. It's crazy. Anyway, sometimes Spanish missionaries highlighted indigenous ideas of ritual pollution and purity as a system comparable to Catholic concepts of purity and Iberian preoccupations with pure bloodlines. Indigenous people, however, would have failed to see the similarities. Indigenous concepts of pollution and purity were embodied rather than moral. For example, in the Naha culture, newborn infants were ritually bathed in order to wash away the pollution ascribed to their bodies by their parents' sexual activity. Once the infant's body was clean, balance was restored. But this was not so in Catholic Europe. Purity and pollution were moral, related to the state of one's soul, rather than bodily, related to the state of one's body. And perfection, rather than balance, was the goal. The Catholic practice of consecrated virginity, a medieval rite which was restored after Vatican II, is a good example of this. A consecrated virgin is a woman who has been consecrated by the church to a life of perpetual virginity as a spouse of Christ. The ceremony celebrates the purity of her soul, and the purity of her body is secondary. If her body is defiled, it is important inasmuch as it defiles her soul. Restoring her hymen, a surgical procedure some believe will restore the virgin state, does absolutely nothing because it's the soul that is defiled. Right, so it's kind of a one-way thing. Like, your body can mess up your soul, mm -hmm. but fixing your body can't fix your soul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, and the opposite as well, right? Like you can repent. Like I'm thinking of a woman whose like husband has passed away and becomes a nun, becomes a sister, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. you can go the other way too, but that process doesn't involve re-virginating your hymen. It involves the soul, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Cl yes. And mm -hmm. so there will be some kind of yeah, like right that your the the state of your body doesn't matter, the state of your soul matters. Yes, yeah, right, right, and you, mm -hmm. yes, um, and you kind of get your soul virginity back, but obviously not your bodily virginity back. Soul yeah. virginity, I like that. Soul virginity. <laughs> um, so this is why among indigenous populations, sexual relations were considered to be not only necessary but enjoyable. The official Catholic understanding of sex was that the virgin state was preferable, but that marital sex, quote, was an obligation and was to be enjoyed as little as possible, mm -hmm. end quote. <laughs> uh, this would have been absolutely puzzling and very unnatural to indigenous Americans. Granted, there were strong traditions of ritual virginity within the Inca empire, but they were strategic and relegated to powerful Inca elites. Every year, Inca magistrates chose beautiful virgins to become aklas. They were secluded in aklawazi, where they awaited their assignments under heavy guard. Some were destined to remain virgins for their entire lives, serving as wives to the sun, while others became the Inca's concubines. This practice was meant to serve as religious ritual, but it also created elite inter-ethnic bloodlines, which were important to Inca politics. 
Though the Aklas may have had special spiritual authority akin to Teresa of Avila, most Andean women valued marital sexuality. Prior to contact, Andean gender parallelism also meant that daughters inherited property and status from their mothers and sons inherited from their fathers. Girls and women had just as much access to their ILU's resources as boys and men. Female rulers, called Capulanas, ruled over communities in the northern Andes. Both sexes served as priests and confessors. Andean midwives had special status as earthly representatives of Pacamama, the Earth Mother. Andean women participated in public life as healers, textile manufacturers, and farmers. I love Pacamama. I'm very excited about Pacamama. <laughs> so the elites might have had these kind of ritualistic virgins, but like normal people, that was not a thing. Uh, so after contact, the Spanish reorganized Andean communities into ILUs, um, which systematically dismantled the Inca elite's system of kinship by forcing marriages outside of the royal bloodlines. In Central America, the Spanish crown tried to keep indigenous, African, and European communities apart, but the skewed sex ratios among Europeans and Africans, they tended to be male, uh, made this impossible. Indigenous women were often the only women available for marriage or sex. This issue was exacerbated by the encomienda system, uh, which required that men who were granted an encomienda be married or else they forfeited their grant. In this context, marriage always meant that, you know, that that would be recognized by the Spanish crown and solemnized by the Catholic Church, presumably to Spanish women. Um, so it didn't count if you were, you know, went through an Inca ceremony with an Inca woman. That's not a marriage. Mm -hmm. And you are still forfeiting your grant. Many men had already married or cohabited with Indian women and fathered mestizo children before receiving their grants. In those cases, they often took a Spanish wife as soon as they could and spent most of their lives providing for two different families. Despite its intent, the state's restrictions failed to prevent racial mixing on a large scale. In the early years, Spanish conquistadors appeared to care little about maintaining the sexual virtue of indigenous women as they used sexual violence and concubinage to slake their lusts during conquest. You put concubinage in there just for me, didn't you? Oh, I couldn't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After 1530, in the colonial context, Ricogita became incrementally more central to the lives of many Latin American women. Friars charged themselves with converting polygamous marriage among the Inca into monogamous ones during the 1530s and 1540s. They spent endless hours investigating polygamous marriages in an attempt to deduce which wife had been taken first. One Spanish friar said of this process, quote, We found ourselves in a labyrinth of great difficulty, for they lied in saying which was the first, and they committed fraud in order to marry those for whom they had greater affection. Does that make you sad? Yeah. <laughs> that they had to lie to, they had to pick one wife I when know. they were used to having several, it's and terrible. then they had to lie about which one was first so that they got to marry the person they wanted. Right. I don't know. Yeah, like trying to make the best of this terrible situation, I guess. Yeah. 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 This process was particularly life-altering for elite Inca wives who had not been deemed their husband's true wife. Their status changed tremendously from one of honor and nobility sitting at the head of an important political alliance to that of concubine, prostitute, and sex slave in their new Hispanicized context. 
these women would have become painfully aware of the notion of ricogita, female virtue, in this new world. The Spanish used marriage and sexuality to aid in their colonial endeavors, and this is really well illustrated by the story of a girl of elite Inca heritage named Beatriz. Wait, I'm interrupting you to say Beatriz is the name of my sourdough starter. With a Z? Beatriz yes. with a Z? Yeah, exactly. She's a she's a Hispanic sourdough? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or a Lucifone sourdough? <laughs> So, Beatriz, the girl's father, an Inca loyal to the Spanish, died in 1560 when Beatriz was an infant. Her noble Inca lineage was attractive to allied Inca and Spanish statesmen who sought to consolidate colonial power in Cuzco, which was the old Inca capital. They planned to marry her to a young man, also of noble Inca blood, but a converted Christian, in a bid to join Inca and Spanish interests. However... Beatriz and the boy were first cousins, and their marriage would have violated Catholic proscriptions against consanguinity. So, without a dispensation from the Pope, the young couple's marriage would not be a legal one in the eyes of the Spanish. And that's the only eyes that mattered. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) In the meantime, Beatriz's mother objected to the Inca's plans, preferring for her daughter to marry into a different Spanish family of her choice. But since the Spanish did not recognize mother's authority over their daughters like the Inca did, her desires were immaterial. She secluded the child in the Santa Clara convent of Cuzco until the time when her future was decided. The plot to reform the Inca state failed. Historian Jane Mangan writes, When Inca rulers anticipated incorporation of the Spanish through the gifting of women, they found instead that Spaniards expected to dominate politically and culturally. Betrez remained secluded in the convent for her protection. When she was eight years old, Betrez's mother purportedly arranged for Betrez to be kidnapped from the convent and secretly married to a Spanish soldier, Cristobal Maldonado. Maldonado raped the young girl to consummate the marriage and stake his claim on her influence and fortune. It's unclear if her mother conspired with Maldonado or if she was coerced into the handing over of her daughter. Ugh. Right, so she was eight. So I said raped because you can't. When you're eight, you can't really consent, I don't think, even historically speaking. Horrifying. So the marriage was invalid because it was done without permission from the church. Moreover, it angered Spanish officials because it brought together the two most powerful encomiendas in Cuzco. And that might have been one of the reasons why, if Beatriz's mother actually did arrange for it, like conspired to to do this on her own, it might have been for that reason, you know, to, mm-hmm. to become more powerful, right? Um, Maldonado was exiled and Beatriz was returned to Santa Clara, the convent. Um, the Spanish crown sued Maldonado for the damages they had incurred due to the loss of Beatriz's virginity. I know, which is like... Right. <laughs> yeah. Her mother uh, was devastated um, because her attempt to determine Beatriz's future uh, on her own as she would have been able to before conquest, um, her ability to determine Beatrice's future had failed. And now she knew she was not really going to be able to have any say in what happened to her. When Beatrice was 15, she was given the choice to take her vows or to marry. She chose to marry. The Viceroy of Peru arranged for her to marry a Spanish captain who received a massive bribe from the government to do so, um, perhaps because she was no longer a virgin. Um, And he went on to serve as the governor of Chile. 
One of the unforeseen consequences of this tactic was the concept of Rikogita, loosely translated as virtue. Rikogita ties female seclusion to virginity and honor. Beatrice's seclusion in Santa Clara was made necessary by her value as a bride in the colonial context. Her period of seclusion was meant to preserve her virginity and piety while her political marriage was resolved. If Beatrice lived in pre-Columbian times, her mother would have had the authority to choose an advantageous marriage for her daughter according to their customs. No seclusion or Catholic indoctrination would have been necessary. Instead, Beatrice was used as a pawn by both the Inca and the Spanish, but as illustrated by their petition for a dispensation on Spanish terms. In historian Jane Mangan's words, native elites still might use marriages as a way to stem the tide of physical or cultural violence, but the negotiations entailed risks and women particularly might suffer. Right. Um, Catholic attitudes toward gender and sexuality were immediately enforced on indigenous people and imported Africans. The Crown established an inquisition in Latin America and formally called the Indian Inquisition. Colonial wives were taught that they were expected to be submissive to their husbands, just as Indians were to be submissive to the Spanish. This is a concept called reduccion. Within Iberian Catholicism, married and unmarried women constituted different castes. Even though marriage was a normative institution, that means that was normal to get married, Catholic doctrine taught that women who married had still somehow lost something. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7.34, it says, um, There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Hmm. End quote. That's interesting. This part of Catholic doctrine was one of the focuses of the Spanish Inquisition. Women were often questioned by inquisitors for having claimed that marriage was more holy than virginity. In 1568, a Spanish shepherd's daughter named Maria de Cardenas was charged with heretical blasphemy for saying, God did it to Our Lady like her father did it to her mother, and insisting that God had known Our Lady carnally. Her blasphemy violated the doctrine of immaculate conception, which held that not only was Jesus conceived immaculately, but that the Virgin Mary was herself also conceived immaculately, thereby making hers the first conception that did not carry with it the taint of original sin. Um, I, I don't know where they got that, but Catholics, I mean, they come up with stuff. Yeah, I don't know. They were trying to find a way... To make it right, so to that make it so that there was absolutely no original sin yeah, involved. There's in no Jesus's way Jesus birth. could have right. any original sin, and right. since Joseph was not a part of his conception, mm-hmm. they had to make Mary not have any sin. So then Herself, they were like, right. "Oh, well, she was immaculately conceived too. Then, mm-hmm. so she didn't come from sex." But then, like, but didn't her parents come from sex? So, like, what? Right. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's, what? it's fascinating to me. Like all. I, like I've just become very interested in theology in recent years. And like, it's, it's fascinating to me to learn about historically speaking, like all of the hoops that people, not just the Catholic church, but like all sorts of Christian denominations have had to go through to try to solve the problems of the Christian faith and, and the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Bible doesn't say anything about 
<laughs> right. Mary's conception, right? Right. And no I'm idea. sure I'm but, sure that that happens in all religions too. Oh, of that course. They have yeah. these scholars who are debating these finer points and they're like exactly. doing all of these mental gymnastics to yeah. make it work. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's certainly not, I don't mean to rag on the Catholic church. I mean, there's, there's, they are an easy target sometimes, but it's certainly not just them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so as we saw earlier in the story of Beatriz, indigenous women were stripped of political, social, and spiritual authority that they had enjoyed before contact. You can especially have seen that with her mother, right? Her mother would have normally been able to keep her in her household and to, um, she would have been able to inherit from her mother. She would have, uh, her mother would have had a say in who she married, who she didn't. But for all intents and purposes, Beatriz was kind of considered an orphan once her father died because the Spanish were like, oh, moms, we don't give a crap about them. So many indigenous women sought solace and faith and authority in the church. Catholic doctrine was impressed upon indigenous populations with vigor. Colonial priests, missionaries, inquisitors, and statesmen constantly reinforced the value of virginity and disparaged indigenous sexual attitudes and practices. For example, Franciscan friar Bernardino de Sahagún wrote the following in one sermon. Quote, you lost the grace of God. You placed yourself in sin. You pushed away guardian angels. Already the tlacataclatl, which meant the devil, carries you about. You are still a girl, a virgin. You pertain to the girls, the virgins. Now you're ready to pertain to the promiscuous women. When you were still a girl, your heart knew that it was gold, precious. But now it is like a chamber. When you were still a girl, a virgin, you were equal to a very good flower. Now you are just equal to filth. God's possession, which he, your girlhood, virginity, uh, you gave to the devil. Oh, how wretched. So basically somebody translated 16th century Spanish into English. And Poorly. Sound <laughs> but you get the idea that... Yeah, yeah. Um, when you were still a girl, a virgin, you were equal to a very good flower, and now you're just equal to filth. Yeah, it's and it's striking to me in listening to that quote how you could, you know, shine up the language and make it modern, and you could that that could be a purity sermon today. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh, yeah. I had students in my history of sexuality class thank me for teaching the class, and they said that they went to a Catholic school. Once again, yeah. not to rag on Catholics, but. In this no, particular situation, yeah. that's what it was. Right. And their sex ed class, they all had to take an unwrapped piece of candy and all had yes. to handle it with their hands. Yes. And I've then heard of this. their teacher told them to eat it and they were like, ew, no. And they were like, well, that's what you're like when you exactly. have premarital sex. Right. And I was like, yeah. seriously, that was your sex ed? <laughs> right. And and this idea that like at the end of that quote, right, where it says like you've t- you've taken this gold, you have this gold heart, you're like a pure flower. God gave that to you, and you took it and you gave it to the devil. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like you you're betraying God. You're like I was once at not a I was raised Catholic, but I was at a um, evangelical event listening to a speaker talking about how. Even if you like masturbated, you were cheating on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like you were betraying Jesus. Um, and of course, all these concepts of like you're cheating on your future spouse. Before you've even met them, you're already cheating on them just by looking at yourself or touching yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, that 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 sticks around 
it has stuck around for a really long time and it it, it does a lot of damage to lots of people all the time yeah i agree (sighs) the only way indigenous women could circumvent this loss of authority was to remain unmarried in their violent and patriarchal climate, this would have been sexually risky, with a good possibility she might become a concubine or prostitute, and also economically unfeasible. The only viable alternative was to become a woman religious, whose virginal state would be glorified by the Catholic Church. During this time, the cults of St. Mary expanded rapidly, and indigenous people developed new ways to worship Jesus' virgin mother. The doctrine of Immaculate Conception became one which indigenous converts and Catholic Creoles vowed to protect with their lives if necessary. Confraternities, universities, guilds, and etc. built their institutions around the veneration of the Virgin Mary. Right. So even though initially this emphasis on virginity would have been sort of puzzling to indigenous people um, because of this very violent patriarchal system, women who sought authority and they sought to be left alone by men did so in Catholic places that kind of indoctrinated them into valuing virginity over everything. So sort of this weird um, and sort of this weird sort of turn of events Um, Latin America became a place where virginity and the Virgin Mary and the doctrine of Immaculate Conception um, really took root and became a pervasive and really important part of their society. So Mm -hmm. um, during the 1500s, systematic female seclusion um, was confined primarily to cloistered comments and to private homes. These makeshift ricojimientos were primarily used to Hispanicize and catechize the daughters of Nahua and Inca nobility. Of course, ricojimientos were a means for the church and the state to control indigenous women's marriageability. Remember the case of Beatriz. That's where they kept her to make sure, well, they tried to make sure that her virginity was kept intact while they were, you know, machinating all in the background trying to find a good marriage for her. Um, But these environments also served to assimilate indigenous nobility to Hispanic society and educate them in Catholic doctrine. This initiative was, for the most part, successful. Indeed, Nahua and Inca clergy tended to be even more critical of indigenous beliefs and practices than European clergy were. So they totally drank the Kool-Aid, right? And that being said, within their seclusion, indigenous women often found some of the spiritual authority that they had lost in public life due to the conquest. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. After 1550, things became much more complicated in colonial Latin America. As these societies became increasingly diverse, complex, and racially mixed, they evolved into pigmentocracies. A pigmentocracy is a system that links skin color with honor, virtue, and calidad, which translates to status. Latin Americans were, over time, organized into strict racial hierarchies called castas. Your casta dictated your class, your legal status, as well as your marriage eligibility. High-status white men and women found few eligible suitors, and marrying below their calidad, or marrying someone of inferior race, of limited means, or a little political power, was not an option. For men, this was less of a problem, since they could take a concubine and sire illegitimate children for decades while they sought a suitable match. 
their illegitimate children faced harsh limitations on their social mobility as bastard birth was a permanent stain on their honor. But fathers of illegitimate children could go on to marry legally and produce legitimate heirs as was expected of them. Even if a man reached middle age before finding a suitable wife, he could marry a teenager and produce heirs. For women whose childbearing years were limited, this was not an option. Even more importantly, women were vulnerable if left unattached. In the absence of financial support and protection from their fathers, brothers, or other male relatives, there was no place for them in public life in Latin America. Therefore, after 1550, we see droves of women of European descent, either peninsulares or creoles or women of mixed race called mestizas, opting to enter Latin American cloistered and semi-cloistered institutions instead of contracting disadvantageous marriages that would damage their honor. In 17th century Portuguese Brazil, for example, only 14% of the daughters of elite families married and 77% went into convents. That's how complicated um, this pigmentocracy made marriage, right? Wow. Um, Indian and white families began opting for arranged marriages or coercion to enforce honorable marriages among their daughters. Uh, whites were able to use the method of seclusion to shape their daughters' marriage prospects. It became common for white families to cloister their daughters from birth to prevent them from meeting any men other than the man who was intended to be her spouse. Through this confluence of events, the colonial period appears to have been the crucible in which Ricogimiento was forged. The imposition of Spanish gender norms, catechization of Indian people and Catholic doctrine, and the development of castas complicated the process of marriage and reproduction and bounded women of all races by strict moral codes. The evolution of Ricogida was, however, a long and slow one, and the formation of Ricogimientos as institutions took even longer. Some convents served as Ricogimientos because they were licensed to house both women who intended to take orders and those who did not but who sought refuge. Some convents were reformed into monasteries, at which point inhabitants were expelled if they did not take religious orders, and indigenous and mestiza inhabitants were, at that time, prohibited from taking religious orders. Enter the Ricogimiento proper. In the 1550s, it became apparent that different institutions were needed, ones that admitted women of all races and did not depend on the inhabitants' willingness to take religious orders. After 1580, officials became more concerned with regulating women who were, quote, wayward and unstable, end quote, which is like, I don't know, sounds like me lately. Um, but <laughs> I'm just saying I can relate. Um, I'm going to refer to you as my, my friend Marissa, the who wayward, is wayward and unstable. Wayward and unstable. Um, the logic behind the institutionalization of Rukojida lay in the widely held belief that women were inherently vulnerable and predisposed to sexual deviance. Loose networks of cloistered convents and private homes were no longer robust enough to house all the women, quote, in need, right? All of these unruly women. A broad range of semi-cloistered institutions emerged to both punish, protect, and really to separate inconvenient women from general society. Beaterios sit somewhere between the convent and the boarding house, and these were comprising laywomen who lived under simple vows. 
um, depositos were houses where women were deposited by family members and officials for their, quote, protection during the absence of their husbands or other male relatives. Um, sounds like a dog kennel now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> a dog kennel, but a, a woman kennel. Um, Recogimientos uh, began on the lowest end of the spectrum, and it was um, a semi-cloistered institution that uh, placed orphans, reformed prostitutes, and, quote, unruly or feckless women um, who could be deposited by male relatives, end quote. The founding documents of the Santa Clara convent list several dozen inhabitants. Many of them came many of them came along with monthly donations, room and board, or their dowries to finance their stays. But this was not always the case. So th- this is the the kind of documentation of one girl who ends up at Santa Clara. Juana, poor, orphaned, father unknown, found in an Indian village, brought to this monastery in early 1561 with no dowry or board. She is to be catechized and remedied for the love of God, and it shall be set down on this page what becomes of her. Juana and 18 other young women were listed as orphans, meaning their father was dead, and, you know, nobody cared about what happened to their Andean mothers. Seven of them were the daughters of Spaniards who died valiantly in wars of conquest. Of the several dozen women who lived at the Recogimiento, 18 of them took vows, but 33 of them left home and were often married to Spaniards. There is some evidence that the lowly origins of the inhabitants occasioned plenty of criticism from both indigenous folks and the Spanish. Guaman Poma, who is a 16th century Quechua activist, um, who denounced Spanish atrocities in the Andes, said the following of early recogimientos. Quote, Christian Indians enter nuns' convents. They learn reading, writing, music, and sewing. They work, cook like Spaniards, sew, clean, and bake, but are also sent into the streets late at night, where they see all the bad and end up whores. End quote. So historian Catherine Burns um, argues that this kind of reaction among indigenous people to Recogimentos um, demonstrates how much resentment and anxiety they were having um, about this process of acculturation and like losing their own culture to Hispanic culture, right? Because that's kind of what was going on inside of these Recogimentos is, you know, girls are being re-educated kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to sort of slander them, a lot of indigenous people criticized Recogimentos in that way. Um I guess because if you think about it, a recogimiento, just a, a bunch of single women all living together, I guess, mm-hmm. and and they're not a convent, mm-hmm. they don't take orders, uh, right? it right. does kind of sound more like a brothel than a convent, I guess. Yeah, it, it could, yeah, for sure. It's the whole get thee to a nunnery thing, where nunnery actually meant a brothel in <laughs> Shakespeare. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, just something I remember from high school reading Shakespeare. Anyway. Many people believed that Recogimientos were some kind of low-rent, fake convent, and therefore they failed to treat the Recogidas with respect. In 1689, Don Pedro de Belbin sent several mestiza women to be admitted into the local Recogimiento, but they arrived after hours and were refused entrance. 
Angered by this refusal, Belbant went to the building himself and demanded entrance. The head of the Ricogimento declined to open its doors, saying it was a, quote, suspicious and indecent hour for a Ricogimento of so many maidens to open, end quote. So this suggests that these institutions took seriously their charge to protect the virtue and reputations of its inhabitants. Belba, in his anger, yelled that they were all whores, saying that they let men, (laughs) I know, like, oh yeah, well, you're whores, Um, saying that they let men climb over the roof at night and that they bore bastard children inside of those walls. He finished his tirade by threatening to whip them before he threw them all out of the building, right? And that's sort of invading their enclosure, right? So this is more than just a building. This is supposed to be an enclosure that protects their virtue. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, you're all whores, right? (laughs) Some of this disdain may have come from the transgressions of some inhabitants. In many cases, seclusion in a red cogimento was involuntary. This was primarily a way for the church, the Inquisition, and women's families to police female sexuality under the guise of protecting female virtue. A great example is the story of a Mexican woman named Augustina Ruiz, who was investigated by the Inquisition in Queretario, Mexico, in 1621. Ruiz was denounced by her own parish priest, to whom she confessed her sins. She told him she had committed self-pollution, masturbation, every day since she was 11 years old. She told him that she fantasized about Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and that during these visions they penetrated her, both vaginally and anally. She even admitted to becoming aroused by the Eucharist and masturbating during Mass. Yeah, this is a problem, She absconded before she could finish her confession and be absolved of her sins, so her disturbed priest denounced her to the office of the Inquisition. I don't know, does that seem like, so, I know, when I first read that, I was like, okay, so this priest who was hearing her confession was like, hey, nation state, want you to hear about this confession I heard? Like, but... Apparently, he said it's right. because she didn't finish it. So if she had finished the confession and he had been able to absolve her, he would not have told then them, it wouldn't have, I guess. Yeah. But still, it's like, it's kind of shitty. Isn't the whole idea that nothing that is said in confession is... Yeah, but apparently yeah. not. Apparently, if the confession is not... If you're not absolved, then fair game, huh. I guess. Um, Ruiz was a 20-year-old unmarried mother of a 7-year-old son. She had cohabited with a lover whom she intended to marry in Mexico City in her early teens, I guess really like 11 and 12. Um, The couple bore an illegitimate son when Ruiz was only 13, but her lover died before they could legitimize their union through marriage, which is a common thing that we've talked about on the show. Um, Before her trial, Ruiz was involuntarily deposited into the house of a family in Querétaro by her brother. Her inquisitors removed her from this home and placed her with a more respectable family and advised her that she was not permitted to speak to any man during the time of her confinement. During her trial, women in her community testified that they'd witnessed Ruiz out in public allowing a man to put his hand up her skirt. Interestingly, historians have noted that Ruiz's confession bears similarities to the experiences of female mystics, such as St. Teresa of Avila and the Peruvian mystic St. Rose of Lima. Remember Teresa of Avila from the beginning of the show? That she was the saint that um, perfected the practice of the recogimiento in prayer. Uh, In what 
became known as the Ecstasy of Teresa, the Spanish mystic claimed that a beautiful angel with a great golden spear plunged it into my heart several times so that it penetrated to my entrails. When he pulled it out, I felt that he took them with it and left me utterly consumed by the great love of God. The pain was so severe that it made me utter several moans. The sweetness caused by this intense pain is so extreme that one cannot possibly wish it to cease, nor is one's soul content with anything but God. Ooh, boy. Yeah, that sounds like God you're talking about. Um, That's got some overtones. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Overtones. Um, So these very erotic expressions of spiritual ecstasy were common within the tradition of bridal mysticism. And they were meant to convey a physical and spiritual union with Christ. Historian Zeb Tortorici suspects that Ruiz was familiar with this brand of mysticism because it was widespread in Catholic Latin America, um, but that she was uneducated and she used vulgar street language to articulate the experience, right? Being like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, Mary and Jesus stuck it up my butt or whatever. And so, like, that mm-hmm. obviously it doesn't, you know, even though St. Teresa, you know, it was very erotic it was still expressed in a way that was very clearly right. mystical Catholicism, I guess. Right, um, the right, Mexican right. Inquisition uh, pronounced that uh, Ruiz had been seduced by the devil, and they sentenced her to three years imprisonment in a Mexico City convent. So she had been deposited during the trial, and then she was kind of sentenced to live in Recogimiento uh, in Mexico City as her sentence. The most common form of involuntary deposit was by family members who felt their female relatives were threatening to dishonor their families. This may have been the reason why Ruiz's brother deposited her before her trial began and her sins became generally known. More often, this involved marriage negotiations. Women who contested their parents' choice of spouse for them, or women who fell in love with someone who did not meet their family's requirements, were in danger of engaging in premarital or extramarital sex, or of securing a secret marriage if she had the ear of a clergyman. The early role of recogimientos in Latin America expanded quickly. Protecting female virtue became such a priority to the Catholic Church that they even agreed to overlook their own rules if it meant that they could preserve women's virtue. In this strict Latin American pigmentocracy, young couples who fell in love were often prevented from solemnizing their union due to the restrictions placed on their casta. In many of these cases, the Catholic Church performed secret marriages to help young couples circumvent family objections to matrimony. They reasoned it was the only way they could prevent the sin of fornication, concubinage, and prostitution. You just put concubinage in here as many times as you could. (laughs) Societies that limit women's independent access to resources often face the scourge of prostitution. We've seen this in many other patriarchal societies we've encountered on the show. In Latin America, however, this issue is compounded by a system of status based on race, wealth, and family bloodlines that complicated marriage negotiations. This created a heterogeneous pool of women who found sex work to be their only means of survival. Even in their earliest years, the Recogimientos served as homes for penitent prostitutes where they lived as semi-cloistered women religious. 
In much of the Catholic world, these institutions were also called Magdalene homes, and their regiments are informed by the story of Mary Magdalene, Jesus's friend and, according to lore, reformed prostitute. Right. Um, And so, like, all throughout the day, they would have to kind of live these very regimented lives that were, that revolved around... um, reforming themselves and saving their soul from their filthy past lives or whatever. Um, Despite their purpose, recogimientos were not always safe spaces for female virtue. There were a few scandals wherein priests and bishops sexually assaulted women housed in the affiliated recogimiento. Ambitious men um, occasionally abducted wealthy women and girls from recogimientos and raped them in order to force a marriage and forfeiture of her family's estates to him. However, women from lower castas were still vulnerable, too. For example, in 1673, a slave named Florentina del Sacramento was abducted from the convent of Santa Clara and raped. Since her family had no wealth or power, her rapist absconded rather than marry her. Nowadays, it's kind of like, well, good riddance, right? But in the 17th century, this put Florentina in a horrible position. She was defiled, dishonored, and closed from all walks of life except prostitution, right? Or perhaps becoming a nun. The seclusion of the wayward women did not end with reformed prostitutes, though. Recogimientos also began housing women known as divorciadas. After 1550, the church began granting annulments and divorces in Latin America. This was a development that they resentfully blamed on Latin American women, especially once they realized that women were using divorce and annulment to reverse the loss of autonomy they experienced in marriage or to engage in sinful sex. The Second Council of Lima issued the following proclamation in 1567. Many persons, especially women, for extremely shallow reasons and with the intention of regaining their freedom, fulfilling their lust, and avoiding the burdens of marriage, are too quick to initiate divorce proceedings. We order that from now on, nobody but the bishop himself may be allowed to hear divorce cases. The bishop may do so only for absolutely certain rational and manifest causes. Right. Not because you want to get laid. So... Still, separation, annulment, and divorce proceedings continued. This should not be surprising in a society that valued political expediency and social mobility over compatibility in matchmaking. Most marital suits, um, called querellas, uh, were brought by wives rather than husbands. We've seen examples of this in uh, past episodes, but it's always interesting to see how women use the patriarchy against itself sometimes in legal cases. Um, One of the most common grounds for divorce used by women was that their husbands failed to uphold a sense of moral enclosure within the household. By 1650, Rukojida had become an objective of all women in Latin America, irrespective of race or status, and it was something they sought to achieve within their own homes. The excellent historian Nancy Van Dusen, um, her study of marital litigation in Lima is really helpful here. She found that women of all races and social classes described themselves as Rukojida in their divorce suits. They worked to prove that they were quote, living honestly and recogidamenti, meaning um, their lives were not overly public or scandalous and they had not stained their husband's honor. The 1667 case of Dona Marcella Gutierrez is illustrative. She 
complained that her husband dragged her from farm to farm, forcing her to work in front of his slaves, and that he did not provide her with clothing befitting of her station. She described what this had done to her, disdain and discredit me, having been raised in my parents' house with ricogimiento, honor and estimation. In his power, I have lost everything. One of their Indian farmhands testified that Dona Marcella was a virtuous and ricogida Spaniard. Her husband defended himself by saying that she was nothing more than the daughter of mulatto dogs, and so she was, therefore, of the caladod, of the status to do this farm work with the others. For Dona Marcella, manual labor damaged her honor. But even lowborn and enslaved women were claiming a ricogida in their suits, and they were able to frame manual labor as a contributing factor to their ricogimiento. Maria Magdalena de la Cruz, an Indian woman, sought divorce on the grounds that her husband Juan, quote, does not give me shoes nor dress my two children. I have always been ricogida and faithful to him, end quote. A woman named Maria Coronado testified that her husband was failing to support their family. Coronado was described by others as a poor but ricogida woman. Both women argued that their husband's failure to uphold his conjugal responsibilities had forced them to become public women, working with their hands to feed their families. They were successfully able to deflect this dishonor onto their husbands, but only because their track record as wives were spotless. In these cases, their ricogida was restored when their divorces were granted and they went to reside permanently in ricogimientos. So it kind of worked out for them that they could say that their husband was not they did not make their home a ricogimiento they did not give them this moral mm-hmm. closure and right. they had to work because their husband didn't work he wasn't fulfilling his right. part of the bargain and so there was no damage done to her honor even though if she had chosen to do that there would have been um so they right. kind of used the patriarchy against itself kind of mm, but definitely. it only worked because they were, they had kind of spotless track records. They had all these people who said, oh right. yeah, she's never ever done anything bad. Yeah, 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 definitely. It is possible that the opening up of the ricogimientos to low-born and wayward women had the effect of expanding who was eligible to claim ricogida. This also had the effect of making the private home a universal form of ricogimiento in Latin American society. Van Dusen even found several cases of enslaved women claiming ricogida. For example, in the 1685 case of Maria Ferrero, a mixed-blood slave, she announced to the court that it was well established that she was ricogida and that she had support in her entire neighborhood in the case. During the investigation necessitated by marital litigation, it became customary for the wives in question to undergo depositio. This meant that they were deposited in the home of a respectable man, or if one existed, a recogimiento. If the litigation ended in an annulment, which was very rare, both spouses could go on to remarry. If it ended in a divorce, which was much more common, both spouses must remain legally separated, but they also could not remarry. In this case, the women often stayed in their ricogimiento. So this begs the question of whether depositio was voluntary or not. It appears that in some cases it was. Women apparently brought marital suits to court knowing that in the best case scenario, they would live the rest of their lives in a ricogimiento. 
Van Dusen asserts that many women didn't view Ricogimiento as prisons. Rather, they thought of them as places of tranquility and autonomy and preferred to be confined by secular or religious institutions rather than by marriage. The historical record supports the fact that many women in Lima and Mexico City escaped abusive parents or spouses to live in the all-female environment of a recogimiento. There were also other scenarios where seclusion in a recogimiento was voluntary, especially as the 17th century progressed. Women sought seclusion for a variety of reasons. Sometimes the decision was made by women who resented their lack of authority in the temporal world and sought power from within, a la Teresa de Avila. Other times, as mentioned earlier, women opted for seclusion in the absence of honorable marriage prospects. As we mentioned earlier, women short on marriage prospects often took vows and lived their lives within cloistered convents. Van Dusen refers to this as investing in spiritual capital. However, as the state grew, it became increasingly difficult for women to obtain licenses to open convents, and the initial investment was often cost prohibitive. Licenses for recogimientos and beaterios were much easier to obtain, and the cost to set one up was much more manageable. Moreover, some women did not want to become nuns. This was especially the case for those who eventually became lay holy women, or beatas. Beatas often served in honored positions in Latin American society. In Spain, Queen Isabella honored beatas at court, and in the 1530s, Hernán Cortés petitioned the crown to send several beatas of an honest lifestyle and proper recogimiento to Latin America to teach at its thriving recogimientos. So, in many ways, the history of recogimiento is very much a story of the collision of worlds, the collision of sex lives, of spiritual beliefs, and of human sexuality, ritual purity, and sexual morality. Recogimiento as a mystical precept originated in Catholic Iberia, yes, um, but it remained sort of an esoteric concept until after Spanish and Portuguese explorers made contact with American Indians. And it was in that colonial environment in Latin America that Ricogimiento evolved from that Franciscan method of prayer to a system of behavioral norms that were used to control indigenous sexuality. Um, it was sort of an amorphous concept that tied seclusion to virginity and honor. Over time, this system of behavioral norms broadened to include all Latin American women and inspired a host of new institutions called recogimientos for repentant prostitutes, prospective divorcees, and abused women. Much like the concept had shaped the institution, the institution in turn reshaped the concept into a working class notion of married female virtue, as we saw with some of those examples where women who were not elite women, they pursued divorce and even said, hey, I've, I'm a recogida, um, I have worked very hard with my hands, but only because my husband didn't do his part of our deal. Right. Uh, and... So now I would like to live the rest of my life in this recogimiento. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a hard episode. It was a very hard episode to write because mm -hmm. it means three distinct things. Um, and those three distinct things aren't translatable into English. Um, they mm -hmm. don't have the same meaning that they have you know in English as they would have in Spanish so it's a really hard episode to write but I tried really hard to 
not go the way of trying to argue that Ricojimiento were either bad or good for women. Because I think that's mm-hmm. what a lot of historians, you know, in the 80s and 90s focused on was where these... Right. Is it empowering or is it not right. empowering? Yes. Yeah. Is it empowering or is it prison? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the answer is that it's both. Um, we have right. evidence that it is both. Um, but I think the women who used Ricojimiento as a choice and as something that was empowering for them, they were also limited to that choice. They really only had the choice right, of a Ricojimiento right. to seek power yeah. in, whereas if they had been born male, um, they could have continued to have a public life and have all the things that they wanted as well. Right. Um, so, but I suppose within those limitations, women did a really good job of navigating ways to get around that kind of loss of autonomy. I don't know. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. And when you think of a system of virtue and honor, um, you think of like how it was common in Spain, Italy, and Latin America for women to cover their hair or their heads when they would leave mm-hmm. the house, right? With like lace. Um, I'm sure you've seen this mm-hmm. in a lot of like, well, I don't know. I remember it from like um, period dramas, wherever there's like a Spanish princess, she's like covered in lace and her hair is covered. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's yeah. part of ricojamiento and being a private person and not having a public, a.k.a. scandalous um, yeah. life. So I thought of it as a like before I researched it, I thought, oh, this is going to be all about, you know, um, women being controlled by men or by the mm-hmm. state or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. but the concept is way too amorphous for it to just mean that (laughs) it doesn't mean that. So I hope that it made sense despite the meandering. No, I, I definitely think it did. And, and like all of your episodes, like this is something that I'd never heard of before. Um, it involved, there are lots of things in this that I think that listeners like will recognize, right. And we commented on some of them, like the, you see kind of like, you know, early modern versions of purity culture today, mm-hmm. or like, you know, the, te- the the teachings about women's sexuality or sexuality in general sounds really similar to things that, you know, priests and other, you know, whatever, religious authority figures would teach today. Right. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's very specific to its time and place, but it, it has so many aspects to it that people can kind of be like oh okay like I get it Mm -hmm. you know at least that's kind of my experience learning this for the first time I've never ever heard of them before before like this concept yeah um I mean the only reason I've come across it is because I I read a book by Anne Twinum it was called I don't know public lives private something that's about illegitimacy Uh and honor culture and it's about how those um Iberian ideas about blood purity that came from the Reconquista, how that actually translated into racial purity, but only in the colonial context. So that's where Uh I first came across it. But it was a very small part of what she was talking about. But I thought to myself, oh, like, well, there's a concept, a very well-bounded concept that I can just research. No, it actually turns out that nobody can actually define (laughs) it. Nobody can define it and nobody knows what exactly it is um, Mm -hmm. in English. But yeah. And then I think, you know, the one thing that I wanted to come back to before we finished was the 
the reason I covered some of the indigenous sexual practices specifically uh, was because I think that there are parts of um, Rikojida and Rikojimiento that really only make sense and that really only developed because of that indigenous loss of authority and loss of spiritual authority specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that indigenous groups, when they were talking about purity, they were talking about bodily purity and yeah, that's fascinating. that it was connected to mm-hmm. the cosmos. And so if they, if their body was infertile, for example, that, that meant that they wouldn't have a good harvest or whatever. It's sort of this right. cosmo. And we, we see that also in Europe in a way where the body serves as like a small example of the cosmos um, or the cosmos is kind of the body writ large, sort of like we've talked about it mm-hmm. before, but the difference is that it's not purity. When we talk about purity in the Catholic sense, it's not about the body like at all. It's about the soul. Um, and it's just interesting to think about what that means for enclosure. You know, why did there has to be have to be this physical enclosure to ensure purity and virtue? Like, yeah, what is it about the physical enclosure? Why don't we have that in like Protestant Europe, for example? Or like what? And I thought it might have something to do with this understanding of the body versus the soul or something. Um, I mean, I haven't quite figured it out, but yeah, it just seems so random to me, this idea of enclosure. Mm. I mean, in Northern Europe, they didn't worry about that at all. They were like, hey, teenage girl, go serve as a you know servant to this guy who's probably right, going to rape you right. or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so it's just, yeah. I don't know. I just don't understand. I wonder if it's also just all uh, like also just a very Catholic idea. But you're right. I mean, Northern Europe has Catholicism too. It's not right. like it doesn't have it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it, it seems to line up with, to me with cloistering, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then again, you know, that's not like as you're as you say, right? It like this is Ricochimento is the only option. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Northern Europe, it's it, there are other options. True. Right? I mean, that there's not a ton. Yeah. And they're not for everybody, but. Yeah, it comes back down to that that European marriage pattern thing that I've talked about so many times. And that mm-hmm. in Northern Europe, people lived in nuclear families. And mm-hmm. whereas in Southern Europe, they lived in extended families. So if mm. you were young and of marriageable age, um, or Mediterranean Europe specifically, you mm-hmm. could just live with your parents and your grandparents. And then even once you got married, you could still live with your parents and your grandparents. And that wouldn't be weird. Um, whereas right. in Europe, you had to have your own homestead as soon as you got married. You were supposed to move out of the house. And so because of that, right. you had to work first. And, you know, so you had right. that. Well, right. in, in this context, in the Iberian context and also in the Latin American context, women weren't expected to work. They weren't public people. They were they were supposed to be private and closed people. Right. So I suppose a lot of it comes down to just, like, economy, the way the economy worked and stuff, too. Yeah, true. But it's weird that it sort of dovetails with those Catholic ideas of purity. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. And 
Thanks, Sarah, for hanging in there with all the concubinages. <laughs> I, I, I tried really hard with all that pronunciation. Yeah, so did I. If it's not Marcella, well, I, I tried to give I tried to give myself the, my the difficult ones, like the the Quechua and Nahua ones. I tried to give myself those because they're like literally impossible for my tongue to speak. So I was like, oh, I'll take one for the team and I'll do those. But then I forgot. I didn't realize it gave you all the concubinages. So sorry about that. Okay. Thanks for listening. Um, email us yeah. at hello at digpodcast.org. Uh, visit us on Twitter at dig underscore history. Uh, and join our pod squad on Facebook to chat about episodes and share silly history memes. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash dig underscore history. I think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it dig podcast? No, I think it's dig underscore history. Whatever. And... Um, <laughs> You can find you it. You can donate to us and be our patrons. Uh, we love you. Bye. Bye. Inquisition in Quetario. Quer- no. In Queretario. Um, a great example is... In this strict Latin American pig... Oh, my God. According to the... Oh, my God. These words are hard. Um, <laughs> I, I have tr- practiced, so... Yeah. As earthly representation. Oh my god. The Inquisitions were natural. Nope. Friars charged themselves with converting poly. Bleh. Friars? Friars? Paired a penitential guide for colonial priests. Sorry, I just burped. Um, especially among Andean cultures who called the practice. Oh my god. Who called the practice Saravinakoi. Does that sound right? God did it to Our Lady like... Wait a second. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you might want to read that ahead of time. That was a different direction than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Andean midwives had a special status as earthly representatives of Pacamama. Pacamama. Pacamama? <laughs> uh, let me start that again. They evolved into pigmento crosses. Pigmentocracies. Pigmentocracies. <laughs> Pigmentocracies. <laughs> Beater- oh my god. Beaterios. I know. I just want to say Beaterios. I just want to add an extra I in there. Beaterios. Yeah. This created a heterogeneous pool of women who found sex work to be the only means of survival. Even in their it's earliest heterogeneous. years. Coaches, it's heterogeneous. No, it's not. Yes, it no, is. it's not. It's not heterogeneous. Oh, my God. I found another concubinage. It's heterogeneous. It's hetero- okay, sorry. Okay. Heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. Heterogeneous. Heterogeneous. Or heterogeneous. It's heterogeneous. It's, or you could say heterogeneous. You don't have to do the second E. Heterogeneity. I would just like to make my complaint known that it is heterogeneous. It's not, okay. but okay. 